Welcome to the Knock on Archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another Knock on podcast. I'm here with a longtime friend, and I don't know, you're a leader in so many different arenas, Steve. Dr. Stephen Leith, and... We first met when you were president at ISU, and we've had friendships through your presidency at Auburn, and now you're doing a lot of stuff in the hunting community, which is really awesome because you've been a hunter forever. That's kind of how our friendship began was talking archery and bow hunting. and <laughs> That's right. It's great to be with you again too, John, and to be here at the house and see what you've done with your facility is fantastic. I know. I'm in heaven in here. <laughs> I'm in heaven. I've I've got like different places for different things, but honestly, I've just got to the point where, you know, I'm somewhat a recluse when I'm when I'm at home, I like to be reclusive. And when I when I leave Iowa, I like to, you know, I like to be a people person. But yeah, this is kind of my I guess my I don't know what you'd call it. It's like a sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bow parts, a lot of accessory parts, and a lot of R&D goes on in here. But it's, you ha- honestly, for that sort of thing, you have to have it close to you. Yes. You know, it. if you're thinking about something like sometimes, um, you know, just hanging something or putting something where I have to see it, I'm, it lets me keep thinking about it because I'm not, I'm not an engineer by, you know, by school. I'm just an engineer by more of like by problem solving. So normally, if I feel like I want to try to make something better, I just have to look at it enough times. You know, I can't like stare at it and just be like, I'm going to do this. I need to think about it enough. So the more it's visible to me, it's not out of sight, out of mind. So this is 360 degrees of archery parts and bows. and Well, and some of that creativity seems to come at certain times in the day and certain times of your life, but it, having it this close, you get a, an idea or a passion or something you want to try or tweak, you can jump right on it, which is tremendous. You know what else was nice is the fact when you put it, when it's in very specific spots and not like not everywhere because you know like let's say um uh, you just saw some raw limbs over there and you know so let's say i need to confirm some limb deflections or something for lonnie if i unpack them in the house and they stay there or i unpack them at my office and they stay there like well when i leave here every single place has archery i can never have a break too which i you know i feel like i'm more creative when I have disconnect time, which is what I've, this past two years, I've really forced myself to put my phone in airplane mode at a certain time of night. Like even if my good friends are texting me, most of them know, hey, I put my phone in airplane mode at this time. And, you know, if it's an emergency, call Sharon (laughs) and she'll get me, but I, I have to disconnect. And then normally within that space, I try to not have archery just so that I can, it it helps me be more efficient when I'm, like, when I go in, I know, like, this is what I'm here for, rather than seeing it all the time. Well, 
It's worked out really well for you, so this is tremendous. And you got a place where you can do some fitness work, which got has got to clear your head at times and get you maybe reinvigorated to do some intense archery stuff. Yeah, I, honestly, I I organize my mind the most when I'm lifting weights. Yeah. Um, I just I think well I shouldn't say I organize my mind the most. I organize my mind the most in deer stands then probably weights because like when it's november and i'm doing 13 hour sits yeah i think you know i think about <laughs> cover all, a lot of stuff in yeah. 13 hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah normally by like the third week you know you start like talking to yourself you know i feel like tom hanks and castaway <laughs> you know it's just sitting up there talking to myself especially if i'm not seeing much well, um, you rename your Bo Wilson, I'll know you've gone too far. <laughs> Actually, my last one could have looked like a Wilson. I should have put like a blood print on top of my white limbs. And <laughs> you know what? I think my next one is going to be all white. And that will be a Wilson for sure. That's going to be perfect. So um, part of the reason why I wanted to have a good conversation with you is because you and I have been working together um, I guess I, we always refer to it as the council. Correct. There's no, there's no easy name for it. Unfortunately, we've, you know, that's it's the council to advance hunting and shooting sports. Correct. And, uh, but it plays such a key role. And I'm active with Pope and Young, um, also active with Boone and Crockett Club. Um, you nominated me. Yep. For Boone and Crockett Club, and. So we, we're trying to do as much as we can for hunting in a lot of different aspects. But uh, you were recently appointed to, well, it's, has it been two years? Yeah, I'm in my, just started my third year. Third year. So, yeah, two full years leading the council, which has a fantastic board, too, by the way. Like, the people on the board is awesome. We're fortunate that way. We've got a lot of people that really love conservation, love hunting, love shooting sports, and have a passion to actually put their time and effort in to help the council. Yeah, there's some great leadership there. But I wanted our listeners to, especially there's a lot of people out there that are trying to get more involved with conservation. And I'm, I'm trying to devote some time this year to be a little bit more public about things that I try to help with that are behind the scenes. Um, in the past, I've never, honestly, I didn't want to just talk about everything that I'm trying to do to help hunting, you know, because I don't know, there just wasn't like a need for it. Cause I wasn't doing it to tell everybody else. I was doing it because it's part of my passion and it, you know, and honestly, when certain things change, it helps grow teaching archery, which is what I'm passionate about. And when there's an influx of new people coming into archery that weren't part of our pie and weren't part of our demographic, they're coming in now and maybe they've gone on their first hunts or they've gone on their first, you know, public land hike or or maybe they're trying to get permission on private lands. But they're they're to the point now because i think since covid a lot of people are a few years into this now it's a really great time for people to start to become conservationists and not just consumers of hunting and wildlife so i thought it'd be cool for you to describe the council and 
tell people a little bit about what it does and then also we can have a little call to action of how people could help some of our initiatives with what the council's doing. That's great, John, and we're thrilled that you're on our board. You know, the council is not that old. It was formed a little over 10 years ago, but by the time they hired the first director, it's been about 10 years and really had a two-part mission. One was to get people involved in hunting and the shooting sports, and that was our primary mission, but it's a really a two-part mission. The other part was to educate population on what hunters do for conservation so we're really doing two things but many of your listeners be familiar with the r3 this idea to recruit retain and reactivate people in hunting and shooting sports we actually own that idea i guess you can say because the logo is trademarked under the council um but we have a lot of partners and there's a lot of organizations many of the species organizations du national wild turkey Deer folks and elk folks are all involved in R3 efforts, whether it's a Green Weeks program or Jake's program. But we take the initiative and oversee the R3 community to really set platforms, training methods, and engage all over in getting people involved in hunting and the shooting sports. We're trying to really focus on youth and diversifying the base so everybody feels there's someone like them that can be in the field, feel comfortable in the field, feel comfortable shooting. And it's been really fun. And we're doing a lot of other projects related and on the side, regulation, complexity. We can talk more about that to make the whole concept of getting hunting and shooting sports less intimidating to people who have never done it. And, you know, it's been fun to see the reaction and the response as we move forward in some of these areas. So what are some of the things with the council that you feel the general pop, like R3 is one thing that I think people have seen, but I don't think, I don't think the populace really knows what it is. I think they see, they see our partners, like let's say DU or, um, you know, NWTF, you know, they might see that included in some ads or, you know, or in some, you know, some different recruitment type of concepts. But it's not like there, it's it's not defined, and that's kind of the bummer part about the logo too. Is <laughs> the the logo doesn't paint a picture of what it's doing. But as I get more involved, because every year, every single year, and and the council was was actually last year's initiative for me. Every single year, I try to either become involved or pay something that will support a new initiative that's in a that's in a completely different um basket so you know like the first thing i ever did was become an you know like a member of the ibo you know then you know then all of a sudden you know i became a life member and then i became a life member of well we both came um, life members of the Rocky Mountain Elf Foundation yep. at the same banquet, yep, right? Yeah, that was fun, yep, and right then, here in uh, Iowa. And then, um, you know, I did a life membership for the Iowa bow hunters, and then, and then, you know, with Boone and Crockett Club, when you talked to me about that, I, I made it clear I, I'm not a score person. Yep. But then you also made it clear of, listen, the Boone and Crockett Club is doing way more than just, oh, yeah. than just being a scoring database, which now Pope and Young has also 
taken you know a, some great stances preserve and protection two of the ones that are passionate to me to where i'm like okay i'm again i'm not i don't want to have a podium about trophy hunting um or s score i know i recognize how critical it is because that data is critical and it's awesome that we that we have it but i also you know i still hunt for the hunt like i i don't hunt for the for the score i'm not looking at something saying well is this going to break 130 or you know right. or or whatever and so once i got involved with the boone and crockett club and sat on some committees with you i realized that there's people going into legislation there's you know there's people that are literally fighting for our rights on the hill mm -hmm. all, you know from the club every day like a every single day every single day and and honestly the club i don't think did a good job of letting hunters know about those other things because the hunters really looked at it as this is the official score so that that's just what it went to but you know, back when Teddy Roosevelt started some of those, you know, some of these original programs, the Boone and Crockett Club was a pinnacle part of that. And then now as we move forth, Pope and Young has some very specific initiatives that they're doing. And now the council is, in my opinion, such an awesome thing because it can make initiatives to help all these other people that I've told you that I'm trying to support whether it's give them a little bit of money or whether it's give them some time. But now there's like, you know, a council coming in that can kind of blanket all those different types of people, whether you're a DU person or whether you're, in, you know, you're totally nuts about NWTF or whether you're, you know, you're an elk guy. There, there's still companies or there's still organizations like the council to advance hunting and shooting sports that, our initial f or, or additional firepower for these types of partners. And I think it's critical that everyone out there knows what, what these initiatives are and more importantly, how they can get involved to help. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit, but you know, your points a real good one about mentioning elk or wild turkey or something and if you look at the people on our board it says something about the importance of our mission and our efforts because you know board members represent the rocky mountain elk foundation national wild turkey du usa archery um ata ata right the shooting sports so and a lot of state directors mm -hmm. so it's really a great cross-section of the hunting and shooting community have all come together to say, let's enable the council to be successful because if they're successful, there's going to be more people buying licenses. There's going to be more people buying equipment, which generates excise taxes through Pittman Robertson that goes right into conservation. So we're trying to take what everybody says they want and need and do it without being redundant. We don't need to do what the state agencies are doing. We don't need to do exactly what NWTF or RMEF are doing. But if you look at some of the things we are working on, they have long-term impacts. We're in uh, the lead right now of rewriting the National Hunting and Shooting Sports Plan that lays out a vision for agencies and other entities to say, what do we really need to do to preserve and grow our 
hunting and shooting sports. One that will be of interest to some of your listeners, we are investing a lot of time and effort in partnership with Archery Trade Association to look at the complexity of regulations. This is so important. If you're listening, this is, you know, this is a, a critical thing. Because if you think about there's 50 states and potentially 50 different types of regulations on the type of equipment that we can use. Oh, yeah. And it's intimidating even for experienced hunters who've hunted in different states and different provinces. But we're really concerned about new people. And it can be so intimidating they almost don't want to go hunt somewhere because they're afraid they'll be in violation of a rule or their equipment won't be right. The let off on their bow might be incorrect or their broadhead's too narrow. And, you know, if we can simplify this and, you know, we can't tell the states what to do, but the directors have been really responsive to say, oh, wow, you know, if we're out of line on a simple regulation, it makes sense to get in line with everyone else so some of these things are behind the scenes but we're hoping they're going to pay huge dividends to make things easier for people it won't uh, completely take away the need for mentors but it's still going to be a big hurdle removed from a lot of people yeah because we talked about this one of the things that for a new person coming in there's mentors in different aspects and 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 honestly, that word resonates with me because it's it's something that I'm, I plan on talking a lot about moving forward. But certain mentors covered certain topics. So just because you have a mentor that taught you how to bow hunt doesn't mean that person necessarily was a passionate conservationist or, or doesn't mean that person ever hunted another state mm-hmm. or doesn't mean that you know, maybe maybe a, a person took you duck hunting and you loved it, and then now you want to all of a sudden be a deer hunter, but you don't have that mentor that's going to teach you the basics of that. So you just go in and try it, and you you know get a bow from a shop, and you go out, and like you said, it's it's easy to make mistakes in logistics without that. And I think that some of the initiatives of the council is going to simplify that to where it's not as intimidating for people that are new to our sport because the retention is a, is possibly the strongest word, correct? Right. For the future, the retention has to happen because during COVID we had the influx. Absolutely. They came. Now we have to keep. Right. And that is a challenge. And, you know, everybody gets different points of their lives with families and jobs and children and things and um, keeping them engaged and passing it on to the next generation their children or their spouses is hugely important to keeping this group intact because the reality is in North America there's 70 to 80 percent of the population that doesn't really hunt and not only do we want to keep people engaged in hunting and buying equipment for the money that comes into conservation because it's the way we fund conservation wild places and wild things in this country but we want everyone else to appreciate what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important so you um you was this the first vegas shoot you went to because because um so the council kind of went to the Vegas shoot because uh, Bruce Call and Rod Menzer both are active with, you know. Yep, with, they're both with, on our board. Right, so. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. Uh, it was my first time I went to the Vegas shoot. And 
Historically, the council got really small. We were down to two people at one time, and we've really reinvigorated the council and grown through funding and personnel. We have five employees now. And historically, because we had limited capacity, we focused more on recruitment, retention, reactivation in the hunting world. Mm -hmm. But our charter really is across the shooting sports as well. And now we have the capacity to reach out. And with so many people interested in archery, and 40% now of new archers are female, which is a huge push forward. And it's a model we'd like to use in other areas of the shooting and hunting world. Uh, I went out to see what it was like, and it was amazing to see thousands, literally thousands of archers competing and many full more archers you know, I mean, uh, archery fans watching yeah. to sit for the finals and see the stands filled like a basketball game or something was uh, really inspiring to me. It gets you invigorated about what we can do and how we could grow other aspects of the shooting sports. Yeah, because there's so many different there's so many different branches off of you know when you think archery, some people only think bow hunting. Some people only think 3D archery. Some people only think Olympic-style archery. Mm -hmm. Some people think Vegas. Yep. You know, th there's some people are think traditional archery, you know, trad gear. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different branches of archery, and, and all of them need their own ecosystem. And... Uh, and and honestly, allow the people to cross over, you know, because I really only shot target archery because I really just wanted to be the best bow hunter I could be. That mm -hmm. was that was yeah. the passion, you know. And and when I felt like I achieved that, you know, I came back to be a, a better bow hunter yeah. and and have a family, you know. And and for me, the the travel, if I have to pick travel, I travel to hunt more so than I'm going to travel to compete. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to make those transitions really easy for people so that they can do it all the time i'm trying to think in the last board meeting um there was some there was some analytics that we went through and i think it was you know about like ta you know licenses licenses bought on some of the most recent studies and you know some of the age groups and stuff and you know some of the retention numbers do you remember any of them offhand that were yeah. like there were some that were just like wow we need to know this as a community well yeah we're going to the next step on that so you're absolutely right we did a, a licensing study and now that's become an annual thing for the council and the state agencies are thrilled with this because we're getting more granular about who's buying licenses, what kind of licenses, whether they be lifetime or short term. And in some states, we're able to track how many people are buying bow hunting licenses versus general licenses. But now what we're actually trying to do is with some geofencing work and some other uh, ways for mining data to see who's actually participating. So we're looking at who's showing up at public archery ranges in states like Tennessee or Alabama, who's showing up at gun ranges. We're trying to separate public ranges from private ranges so we can get really granular. And it's not so much just to know, but it's to figure out for the future what do we need to provide in terms of access and facilities so that more people are comfortable participating. And it's a lot of data to mine through. But it's interesting to see. Like, we would have not known that over 40% of new archers are women. 
Yeah. And we It's found, a mind-blowing number. Right. And so if you're a bow manufacturer and you see this trend coming, you've got to sit back and scratch your head and say, what does my product line need to look like? especially in entry-level bows in terms of draw lengths and poundages and things like this. So we're serving a number of different communities because the states like to sell more licenses because they want more people using their facilities and it helps their budgets for managing conservation. The industry side needs to have a feel for where the whole sport is going. Yep. So we're trying to use this data and slice it up different ways for different people to make an impact. And the overall intent is to provide opportunities for great outdoor activities, great family and collegial activities. And at the same time, all this feeds back into conservation because we are unusual in that we have a a model where hunters and shooters basically agree to tax themselves in America to support all this. So every time you buy an arrow or you buy a bow or you buy ammunition it's going towards conservation and we're setting record numbers with the volume of dollars coming in and going to conservation it's really impressive it's exciting to see so as a listener when you hear when you hear the term within the art within the hunting community of federal excise tax Mm -hmm. that that's a tax that is put on the manufacturer for certain products that are I guess deemed uh I mean how would you how would you say it they're deemed uh, you know they have to be they have to be taxed for the purpose of you know feeding back into right. for conservation and the numbers vary slightly I guess deemed eligible yeah you know. between like handguns and long guns and arrows but it's approximately 11% goes right off the top so you pay a certain amount for arrows or for ammunition 11 percent of that approximately goes right off is collected you know we have these meetings that involve everyone from the coast guard and atf to the irs to fish and wildlife to collects these funds and gets them distributed and um and then they're distributed out to the states and there's also a, a multi-state grant program that you can apply to get these funds but they're completely driving conservation in many of the programs most of the council funding comes indirectly from these excise taxes and we're talking about not thousands of dollars or millions of dollars we're talking about like a billion dollars yeah. that goes into conservation from all these taxes over time so it's it's really neat i had the opportunity last year to represent the u.s at a international conservation conference in france and talk about our model and the europeans are doing a lot of things to promote hunting and shooting but the thing they lament the most is they don't have a model like ours yeah that really generates enthusiasm support recruitment and money back into conservation so we're blessed that people back almost 100 years ago now thought up this idea and implemented it yeah and the the important thing for I think for our community is that that message needs to be like the listeners, even down to the grassroots, they need to be able to, to know what that is. So if someone says, well, what do you do? Just go out like you're on our public land and you go and just kill everything. And it's like, you you, you know, you need to say, Hey, this bow I have part of the sale of this bow went towards making sure, stuff like this exists out here 
and, and it's not like they're taxing a new Gucci bag. No, not you know what I mean to to make sure the parks and the you know the state agencies have the funding to make sure that stuff happening. It it doesn't work that way. It's it's us the it's really the people who love wildlife as hunters, not you know not necessarily like people that just view wildlife and think it's cruel to 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 injure it. It's the it's all of us that are the 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 conservation part of the you know the the whole ecosystem. We we are self funding it, and people need to know when you buy a dozen arrows. Hey, there's manufacturers that are taking some of that sale. Mm-hmm. They're having to 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 put it into this to where absolutely billions of dollars are going back into making what we love better absolutely it's not just a take 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 relationship no and when you get people invested intellectually and financially in something like this north american model they care more deeply about it so you don't find people wanting to kill too many ducks or shoot too many deer because they start to get an awareness of the whole conservation model and they're investing in it and they want a quality experience going forward so it's worked out remarkably well i think better than anyone in the 1930s could have anticipated when they set this up and you know as an american this is one of those things we can all be really proud of it's i think in almost anything the more invested people are financially and like I say, intellectually thinking about it philosophically, the better it works. And the enthusiasm and passion you see in the outdoor world has grown. And now that we've got the word spread a little more, that's why we're seeing more diverse people hunting if, and shooting. If you look at uh, percentage of new gun sales in the last couple of years, African-American numbers have Leap! They're going to have the African American Gun Owners Association is going to have its first national convention this year near Atlanta. So as the message gets out and more people understand this model and the outdoor lifestyle and how much it can contribute to their quality of life, we're seeing people brought in that have not participated in these numbers before. So it's kind of like verification that the idea, the model, the lifestyle, the funding model makes sense. Is there one thing that you feel as a hunting community, is there one thing you feel like we're doing to ourselves that are preventing some of the major initiatives of, you know, whether it's the council or, or, you know, Pope and Young or the Boone and Crockett club that are fighting for a lot of these things. It's like getting in your car and you don't realize you left your brake on. You know, is there is there something that stands out that the our hunting community is doing that creates the most resistance when it gets all the way to the hill? Is there one thing that you feel like? I think one thing that we need to be far more sensitive to, and I'm seeing more sensitivity, is the way we talk about large animals, trophy hunting. I mean. I understand that when you hunt and you see a magnificent animal, there's a certain excitement, enthusiasm um, when you harvest a huge buck or bull. But the non-hunting public does not understand that like people in the field. They don't understand the challenge of getting 
close to a really old, wise, mature animal and what a challenge that is. But I think we need to be more sensitive because so many hunters, and you're one, John, that spends a lot of time preparing your game for a great nourishing meal. Yeah, I've probably shot more does in the last couple of years than I'd shot in a long time. And my one son, all he eats is game for you know, his meat. And I think we need to make sure that that conservation message, that, you know, field to table message that's so important to so many outdoorsmen gets to a higher profile and, um, and maybe put a little less public emphasis on horns. Yeah. And, uh, well, and that's for me, that's why, um, one, I'm, I'm, proud but like you know traeger for example for me was just such a critical segue for i mean they came in and they're they support the hunting community with a tool that allows non-hunters to appreciate a hunter yes more so than anything like that grill i you know half of my family is english you know everyone from Sharon's side of the family is from England. If you saw where they were, like I've never seen a deer driving around. <laughs> I've never, I've yeah. never seen a roe deer around there. I might, I, you know, I, sometimes I see some like geese or swans or something, maybe a pheasant, but why would they understand shooting a deer? It's not like there's hundreds of them out in their fields, you know, in these areas. So, you have to you can certainly be abrasive but you also have to 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 at least step a little bit to the other side and look at it from a different perspective and be like well why would they understand that we shoot these things and we eat them you know they, right. they would never know no and the access to public lands and the idea of the game being a public resource is sort of unique to North America. Yeah. And yeah. we're fortunate that way. And, you know, I don't want to diminish the challenge and the excitement of killing a, a large, you know, trophy animal. But I do think that sometimes we get wrapped up in that in our own world and forget the perception that gives to people like you're mentioning that are not experienced with it. And, you know, it's such a great nutritious, you know, source of protein and it always makes me smile a little bit when i go in a, a fine restaurant especially in an urban area and see a traditional game species on the menu because it helps deliver the message that this is you know a field of fork type thing that works and can work for everybody what seems like the elite restaurants they're looking for that to set themselves apart mm -hmm. i think you're right you know it's like you know we have wild bison and, and whoa i want to try that you know they have you know wild elk or that you know or venison venison you know? and certainly a lot of them are uh look at the popularity now of waterfowl on restaurant menus it's often you can see duck on the menu now and honestly i don't know why i didn't like it more as a youngster i think it had to be like how we cooked it because yep. if i see duck on the menu i honestly if there's like a duck with some type of you know some type of an awesome reduction on it sure i'm all in yeah <laughs> i'm all in yeah. especially if they don't overcook it it's it's awesome it really is 
Yeah, it's a fine line, the trophy hunting, because, again, I try to... I try to look at the non like look at the non-hunting side take a step back look at that and be like okay i have to give you know i have to give i'm giving them my opinion i need to i need to budge some when they give me theirs the the same thing is true for trophy hunter like for people that are um you know for example um I, i watched a video where someone shot an elk and there was like a team of people running up and there was like a tape measure out like before honestly before like even field dressing mm-hmm. um but there was an excitement there where i'm like okay listen the these hunters this is this is what they like this is what they love this is what they love about it it's it's obvious this is like everything to them and they've been scoring that thing in their mind for however many months they've been watching it grow you know and they finally get this shot and you know maybe it was a a group effort took a team of people maybe they were you know maybe whatever whatever the scenario is i have to also step back even you know even from within our community i have to step back and be like okay part of me feels like that could give a poor message but I have to a hundred percent appreciate it. And yeah. And if, if I'm not showing a picture of a plate with every single thing I shoot on it, a hundred percent, you know, that's my bad. I mean, we did a, we did an archery event where, um, Sharon and I think the rivets did like 350 half pound hamburgers, elk, elk burgers. We took one of my whole elk, the whole thing got ground to give out free food to people that were at the event. Oh, that's wonderful. And, but I never really made it because I kind of didn't want to be like, okay, you know, look at me, here's what I do with this. But it also, from another perspective, if someone doesn't realize that you are using that for different purposes, not just, yeah, I can't eat it all personally, but I also host a lot of events where I have to cook mass copious amounts of food. And honestly, most of the people that come to my house always want me to cook wild game. So, and the same is true when I'm on the road, you know, if I, if I'm driving around in my camper or stuff, I'm normally, if there's people around the camper, I'm normally cooking for other people to come up and grab something. So there's definitely a lot of consumption and, you know, I probably don't do a good enough job calling that out you know personally like when i listen to what you say i probably haven't done a good enough job expressing the importance of the field to table aspect of it because i mean in the end that is what it finishes with that's that's what all that you know all the preparation or practice it all ends with what's on the table and and how you feel about it which for me i feel very like last night we went to dinner together and I left like two two pieces of fillet on my on my plate, and if it was a, if it was an elk loin that I packed out, I would not <laughs> have left that there. So the, so there's certainly a different connection, you know, and responsibility that you feel when that meat is actually something that you were 
part of you know you oh yeah and you know i think sometimes too we look at our own plate and our own home but something really moved me this year john i uh had a lot of does on my farm and you know they eat very well but um i needed to reduce some for depredation and we reached out actively my wife and i to people that might want venison and i was kind of surprised that i hadn't made more of an effort before we've given deer to hunters for the hungry and programs like right that. right right but one uh fella came over to pick up a deer and i had field dressed it and he was really excited he drove about 40 minutes to get it and he told me on that on the way to my house he called his wife and told her they were going to have meat for the holidays and it really calibrated me in a way that I was thrilled to give it to him, but I felt kind of sad and embarrassed that I hadn't been more proactive in something like this before. So my wife, Janet, and I made an effort. She actually got her hunting uh, education, and she bought a lifetime license this year. And we thought, you know, in areas where there's large populations, like we run 30 to 40 deer per square mile where I live, there's an opportunity there, too, to participate in this great outdoor activity, support conservation, but actually really give back to the community. And so I thought more about this Field of Fork program that we as hunters can do a lot for conservation. We can do a lot uh, for society by participating in some of these Field of Fork programs and make them more aware. And uh, I know for me, it changed my outlook on harvest and what I could and should harvest because you don't like to harvest things you're not going to use but then when you realize there's people in your community that would love to have this source of protein I thought you know I'm going to be more diligent about you know sharing the abundance in our wildlife yeah for sure yeah because um Harry had when Harry played soccer he had a a, a boy on his team and when his family would come to watch the games, it was obvious they were a, a very big family. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a lot of brothers and sisters, and and you could every time the dad showed up, he was you know looked like he had been doing landscaping the whole day, and you know you could tell he he freaking got dirty and worked hard every single day, and and supporting a large family. Yeah, yeah, and. They're actually about two miles as the crow flies. They rent a little home um, on the highway. And one time, I kind of drove by. I saw I saw the the mom and the dad out in the yard, and I pulled in. And they, you know, they kind of looked at me. And um, the son had to come out to translate. And I said, "Would you guys like to have some venison?" You know. And I said, "Like a deer." And they and they said like, you know, kind of like a hamburger packet. And I said, no, like a whole, like the whole thing. Yeah, good for you. And they, I couldn't believe how excited. Like it was kind of like what you said. I feel like in their minds, they're like, oh my gosh, everybody's gonna get to eat as much as they want. And so, within a few days, I literally came over and i've got like that gamble on the back of my that i oh, yeah. put in my yep. bumper hitch so i kind of like you know brought it over and then and then you know skinned it and everything right there 
and like you know carried it in his garage and they like you know they got like got like a picnic table and laid a bunch of paper out oh, on wonderful. it and then and then like literally they just start calling for all the kids and th- there's just this huge like family event of breaking this deer down and and just like you know and th- it's not like they were cutting select cuts out like yeah. we would they were just like this is meat yeah and, and they were appreciative of it sure and i think as hunters one thing that would be awesome is if everybody tried to find one family find one family that you know that you could donate a doe to yep. and, you know and if if you've shot a doe for yourself fi- find another find one other family that it'll make a difference and i've i donate to hunters for the hungry as well mm-hmm. and i and you know honestly some of the places i hunt part of my permission is that i'll shoot a, a doe before i can shoot a buck because you know it's depredation they right. you know they're eating their flowers or whatever it is so um yeah so i mean you could you could certainly in those situations find someone to where if you have the meat that you need find you know you could build a whole new relationship too oh yeah sometimes with that donation it could lead to you getting permission at all of a sudden hey you know my dad owns a farm but we don't hunt it can lead to that and you can actually sometimes recruit someone into the outdoor world when they realize Perhaps they could do this too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so there's so many beneficial aspects aside from, you know, some personal satisfaction that you did a nice thing and a good thing. Yeah. And so I think you you said something that was particularly resonated with me about the challenge that we all ought to think: Can we find a family, a person that would enjoy and or need this source of high quality protein and um, if we all did that, what a great challenge to issue, John. So yeah. thanks for saying that. Yeah, that would honestly that's something that I'm gonna try to make an initiative on and it's certainly something that I would be proud to utilize our platform with too and sure. and you know and reward people that are doing it, truthfully. Um, however I can make that happen. But yeah, that that's such an awesome protocol. Is yep. there anything that we're, as a community, you feel like we're doing right in the last several years that are helping our cause? Oh, absolutely. I think a number of programs, some that started a long time ago by a woman who was at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, like things like the Becoming an Outdoor Woman's program. You know, the fact that we're reaching out and making hunting and shooting sports more welcoming and making it easier to access and i think so many groups so many platforms yours would be an excellent one have made this whole outdoor world lifestyle and even people who are not hunting who are just liking to shoot the awareness we've all contributed to especially with your educational platforms has made people say you know i could do that that would be fun and i think we're doing a really good job of casting people that hunt and shoot as but air quotes here that you can't see normal people you know 
family type values, things they can do. And we saw that in COVID, you know, one of the blessings of COVID, although there weren't that many, people wanted to be outside. And the fact that we as a community have made that possible. You take a state like Alabama that has 16, 18 public archery ranges. That was an initiative that started before COVID, but it made it easy for people to participate in some of these um, outdoor programs. Some of the bilingual ones, Vamos a Pescar, where Spanish-speaking families could realize they could get support and mentoring if they wanted to take their family fishing. So I think we're doing a lot of things right now as a hunting and shooting society to broaden the participation, make it more welcoming, the things we're doing related to hunting complexity, simplifying things. And everybody has a role here, the NGOs, the state agencies, educational platforms like yourself. But we're starting to get to be more cohesive and more organized in uh, the handoff so that this is getting uh, more and more widespread. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we're doing a good job in this area. And one of the things that a hundred percent is awesome is that there's never been a better time to get good at archery quick. And and I only speak for archery because that's what my passion is. And I honestly, I think it's that way for, for any of the shooting sports because you can get to a level inside of a year that took me two decades to get to. Like there's no question there. I mean, when I competed, there wasn't teenagers shooting 900s. Oh, no. To go to Vegas and see a 16, 17-year-old in the final shoot-off was just stunning to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that it's, it's because there's such good information that's accessible. And good equipment. The equipment is improved, but you're right. The educational material and the availability of it is remarkable you know we'd sit there and pour through a hunting magazine and try and learn things trial and error and now you can watch an expert like yourself on a high quality video showing and explaining things to you that was never possible before yeah we used to have to wait 90 you know not 90 days but what 45 days to get a new peterson's bow hunting Hmm. where there'd be five or six articles maybe most of them on a different type of topic so it wasn't like every article in there was learning-based. So there was different topics. And then on top of that, you know, you, you had to read it, and then you're waiting another 45 days. Whereas right now, you can cover that many different pieces of information in under an hour on your phone. Oh, and then move And then move on. Like, say you're reading something on, you know, how to, you know, how to properly grip a bow. Well... YouTube's going to immediately feed you in to how to hold a release, <laughs> you know, how oh, to, yeah. how to anchor properly. And next thing you know, you've got this entire, you've got a, you've got an entire coaching session f- within the amount of time that would take you to like read one of those magazines that, you know, that you were waiting a month and a half to get. Oh yeah. And if people are cognizant of their limitations but they want to do some things themselves they want to know how to properly mount a scope on the rifle or tie a peep sight into their bowstring especially if they live in an area where that service isn't locally available right they can learn these things and do it in a way that they know is right and they do it carefully and they do it safely and that's changed the 
ability for people to enter the sport and feel comfortable in it. It's wonderful. Yeah, very cool. Was there anything you want to close with, my uh, friend? I'll just say that um, participation of people like yourselves and the other members of our board have really invigorated the council, made us relevant to all the other organizations, uh, given us a chance to be complementary and additive to what everybody else is doing. Um, but I think as a challenge to the community, what you said about finding someone that could use a source of protein, if we all did that, and if we're all welcoming in this sport and talk about it in a friendly, passionate way, we'll all be way better off, and the wildlife and wild place in this country would be better off. So uh, thanks for giving us a chance to visit a little bit here, John. Yeah, and actually, um, you and I both uh, were at a a big convention with with all of the conservation officers Mm -hmm. and one of the topics that came up was uh there's a certain aspect of that job i won't go into detail but there's a certain aspect of that job that is voluntary and participation was really low and so the question came up to jocko you know how do we how do we get people involved in this thing that's just voluntary and he said, well, what's in it for the people that are going to volunteer? And they said, well, it's it's more of an honor, you know. And he said, well, has that been explained to them? Like, have you done have you done a job, the, a good enough job of explaining how that volunteer work can help the community and when I heard that, I thought, you know, that's exactly what I should take as a responsibility for the council is why don't I just get it out there, get the public platform out there because there's going to, you know, there's going to people serve and then at times people can't serve and there's going to be a need for more people that can help and more people that are passionate about these topics that we talked about. So, I would encourage anyone out there to listen to the to go to the website. Uh, it's the Council to Advance uh, Hunting and Shooting Sports, and look at some of the initiatives. And if you feel like it's something that you feel like you can help in any type of bandwidth, don't be afraid to reach out because that's what we need. There's a very critical why to all of these organizations that we've talked about today and they're they're all doing absolutely critical things that every single day every single day in congress on the hill they are having to dig heels in for what all of you listening love and they can't do it alone like and the more knowledgeable you are on things like federal excise tax uh, and what that money goes towards, the the better you're going to be as an ambassador to our sport. Absolutely. Know. Absolutely. And, yeah, to follow up, we'd love for people to reach out. People can contribute in all different types of ways in different places, and we need that army of people pushing this agenda forward. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Leith. Oh, it was <laughs> you're welcome. It's good to be here with you. All right. Knock on, everybody. Be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom designed products as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot at your best.